This morning we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 20. And I want to read those verses for you to give you a context as we look at how the body of Christ functions uh, one to another and how it functions together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible Translation. And verse 12 reads, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. We'll go on just a little bit further. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. May God bless the reading of his word. Today we look at the unity in the body of, the, uh, in the body of Christ. The unity in the body of Christ. A unity also in the context of the Lord's church. But as we look at Paul's point, this is in stark and direct contrast to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 3. When we're introduced to the conflict that uh, permeates this whole epistle, this whole letter. And Paul is providing a solve, a remedy to that conflict, I believe, as he begins to not only work out how the spiritual gifts should function and what the spiritual gifts are, but how the members of the body are so composed. And so he's giving us a, a very uh, emphasized glimpse on what it looks like to be in the body of Christ. So you don't have in the body of Christ factions, upmanship, competition, uh, arrogance toward one another, uh, murmurings and whisperings toward one another. You don't have these things evident in the body of Christ. There's no competitiveness in the body of Christ. There's simply a unification around who Jesus is, what Jesus has taught, and what Jesus has ultimately accomplished. And then in that, you have the practice that Paul has so... Uh, lined up for us as we have been reading and studying through this epistle. He deals with it in several areas. The last two that you and I have had to wrestle with are those matters relating to the Lord's Supper and also the spiritual gifts. But if you were to just rewind from our text, you see that there are so many other things that Paul is concerned with 
as it relates to unity in the body of Christ. And so many today speak of unity, but the, the unity that Paul is referring to goes to the very nature of how we came to faith in the first place. It goes to the very nature of how God has so designed the body of Christ. And so Paul's point, after identifying some of the gifts within the body of Christ, because he doesn't speak about all the gifts in that particular passage. I want us to be clear about that. He speaks about some of the gifts. But Paul's point after identifying some of the gifts within the body of Christ was to also help the Corinthians understand how the gifts were to function as they held the body together. So yes, it was the Lord who holds the body together ultimately, but it is all the things that Paul has said so far that holds the body together practically. While Paul definitely found a cohesiveness in the body, he did not want the Corinthians to think all the parts were the same. And just to back up from that, and we'll talk about this a little more because he actually deals with it in a deeper context. I don't want you to think about, as you think about members of the body, that they should all appear the same. Because I think that is what plagues uh, so many churches today, so many so-called churches today, is that they're trying to conform people to sameness and calling that oneness and calling it unity. And when people don't want to conform to being the same, then the typical response is that whoever's in leadership or the body of leaders get frustrated with those individuals because they're saying you should be like me or I should be like you. And what Paul is saying is that there is a distinctiveness in the body. Now, there's not distinction with respect to what we believe, but there is distinction with respect to how we function. And so Paul is trying to describe and prescribe what the cohesive body of Christ looks like, although distinct. And so he did not, again, want the Corinthians to think all the parts were the same. Or that many of the parts being different from one another worked against one another. Because that's the other danger. is to think, well, we're all so different that it's okay if we all work against each other. And so Paul didn't want that as well. He wanted all the members to work for one another. This takes great humility. Wherever you see unity, and I'll say this in the positive because often so many times we say things in the negative. I do want to encourage you in this way. Wherever you see unity, you see humility. When you see a unity within the body of Christ, you see a humility within the body of Christ. That's not easy. We war for that. We war against our pride. But there is a unity in the body of Christ that comprises both the parts and the whole. So there's a unity with respect to the parts and there's a unity with respect to the whole. I'm saying this in introduction, but I'm also, just to tip my hand a little bit, I'm also describing the very context we're looking at this morning. I'm actually summarizing it for you. But there was unity in the body, both in the parts and in the whole. So there is a danger and a detriment to simply focus on the parts to the neglect of the whole. Or to focus on the whole to the neglect of the parts. And what Paul does is he brings it all together for us after having dealt with the spiritual gifts. There were, as he said, many members. There are many members, but they're all tied together. Now, think about this. Why would he need to make that point? Why would he need to stress 
that there are many members. There are individual members, but there are many members, and the body is in totality comprised of individual parts. Well, the reason is because of the factions. The reason is because as the factions were designed in Corinth, they were not designed according to God's construct. Instead, you had separate entities, separate parts, and different wholes. So you had no cohesion. You had a situation where these factions were developed and they were all saying, well, here's our leader and we're under our leader and we're against you because here's your leader and then here are all your members and we're against you. Whenever you hear that language or see that practical outworking of pride, you're not looking at the church. You're looking at people who may be deceived. You're looking at people who may need to grow in their faith, but you're not looking at the church because those who are in the church see the church as one body, yet many members, individuals and the whole. And I think there's a certain laziness that can develop in the Christian life that doesn't want to work hard to maintain the individuality of Christianity as well. So instead, what you do is you simply just blow things out into wholeness to the neglect of the parts. But that's not how Paul thinks. Paul wants us to recognize, verse 12, there are many members. Look at this. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. And then he says it again. As you look at 14 and we'll get to it for the body is not one member, but many. So you and I don't exist in isolation. We don't exist in a vacuum, so to speak. We exist in a total package of the body of Christ, but we exist one to another. There is an individualness. I'm not saying that there is a sense of individual autonomy or freedom but i'm saying we are individuals we have our own convictions and our convictions should align with the whole we have our own personalities we have our own gifts that were bestowed to us and we have our own outworking of how we want those gifts uh, to be manifested but all in all we have to be unified in our purpose we have to be unified in our purpose we have to test things as individuals so that when we are plugged into the whole, then now we have a thorough working Christianity that comprises the whole body. We don't just call ourselves a Christian community and never define it. We don't just say we're a part of Christian community and we just function as a big group of people. Instead, as individuals, you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're thinking about what it is you truly believe. You're thinking about and testing what I'm saying. You're looking at the word of God and you're saying, here's where I land. And yet in this, you need to be an individual because what is coming for the Corinthians are false apostles and false teachers. So they need to individually work things out so that in totality, they agree with the body of Christ. And there is our strength. There is our strength. Do not, dear ones, be influenced by a rogue individuality that has nothing to do with the body of Christ. 
You have to resist that. Just as you have to resist the movements that tell you to just be a part of community. For no reason other than all of us are here and now you've joined us and now we're bigger. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is talking about the practical outworking of the Holy Spirit's gifts amongst the believers and how those gifts function. He's not talking about friendship. He's not talking about hobbies. He's talking about fellowship, true fellowship amongst believers. He says there are many members yet one body. Why? Why is that the case? Well, because Christ is united. Christ is united. He's united in himself. He's the perfect God man. But therefore, him being Lord of his church, him being the head to which the body responds and functions, the body is united or it should be. Look at what he says to this point. All the members of the body, though there are many, are one body. So also is Christ. He said it earlier this way. He said Christ is not divided. In the middle of the raging conflict, once he got the report from Chloe's people, that was his point. Christ is not divided. So therefore, you cannot establish factions and leaders and hero worship and personality cultists. You can't establish those things in the body of Christ because Christ is united. So therefore, man who claims to represent Christ, Christian men who claim to represent Christ cannot be divided or should not be divided. But he says it this way. Look at this. He goes to our sure salvation. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. Ethnicity doesn't break our union. Our socioeconomic status doesn't break our union, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. You know what's in view here? It's not our lot related to the life that we live now. What's in view here is eternity. We are motivated and we fit together because we have a certain and sure eternity before us. I know at times that is very difficult to wrestle with. It's very difficult to see in this temporal time and in this temporal body with which we find ourselves and all of the world's troubles and the world system throwing everything it has at us. I know it's hard to see eternity, but it's there. It awaits us and we await eternity. And that is our motivation. It is our only motivation. He says we were all made to drink of one spirit. I believe here he's not just talking about church fellowship. I think he's referring very specifically to the eternal kingdom. When he says we're all made to drink of one spirit, he's talking about the bond that we will share that transcends the temporal life that we now live. And so, in a sense, we have to act as though we are awaiting and living for eternity together, but also individually. And then the parts have to complement one another. You'll see that as he moves into that. But as I said before, you know what you're also reading? As you look at this text, as you look at this whole context before us, what you're also reading is Paul's defense against the factions. You're reading Paul's defense against the factions. 
Paul is explaining a functional unity. I want you to understand what that means. That's a unity that actually is doing the things it sets out to do. A functional unity under God's will, because that's what's assumed. And then a functional application of the gifts. So you have a functional unity and a functional application. Paul is against a deceptive, piecemeal, peacemaking type unity that has nothing to do with Christ. And he's against misapplication that has nothing to do with Christ. But he's also very much against trying to redefine what these things mean. And I believe he's against not practicing them at all. Because the opposite of a functional unity, one that actually ascribes to God's will and does the things that agree with God's will, the opposite of that is a theoretical unity. Where people talk about unity, they refer to unity, they try to practice it on their own terms, and then you have misapplication. And then you have confusion. Because people become united around things that really have nothing to do with what Paul is outlining for us in Corinthians. But he wants a functional unity and a functional application of the gifts. What I'm not saying is what is very much apparent in this text, and I'll say it now, is that you have to war for this. You have to fight for this. You must fight for this. There's no easy road I can give you to travel. You are going to be salt and light. You're going to be in the world, but not of the world. You're going to be in context with people who hate your testimony and hate your witness. You're going to be, if you're living for Christ, you're going to be questioned, maligned, mocked, and some people will respond well. But what you have to recognize is you have to fight to maintain the unity that God requires. You have to fight to maintain the unity that God requires. You have to fight to apply the unity that God requires. Paul is explaining a functional unity and functional application of the gifts within the body. And when you have this, when you really have this, it gives disunity and schism no breathing room. When it shows up, it's not welcomed. When it shows up, we don't entertain it. When you have a theoretical unity or a misinterpreted unity around things that have nothing to do with God's will and you have a misapplication, then now you're allowing the Petri dish of disunity and schism to cultivate and to flourish. And so here you don't have that. You don't have that in the text. And I believe if we're truly living how Paul has commanded us to, you will not have it in your individual life. And you will not see to it that the church allows it in the corporate sense of the church gathering. But then also I say this because of what Paul says. I went there because of what Paul says about us. Verse 13, Paul goes to the baptism of the spirit. He goes to the baptism of the spirit. This is not only what informs our unity, but it is the source of our unity. So we have a bond in Christ because we are in him, because we are now baptized by his spirit. We now are dwelled by his spirit and we're living life in the spirit. So it is why we have this, uh, why we have this practice of unity. The Corinthians and us with them as Christians, we lock arms with those Corinthians who were faithful and who truly belong to Christ. We're, 
we were all baptized in the one spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's not talking here of a second baptism. This happened upon us and them by the spirit. We did not bring the spirit down or cry out for the spirit to come to us. Nor did we chant in unison for his arrival. Nor are we saying he's here, but he's not here. This is something that the Lord initiated in us. If you were to look at the language that deals with this, uh, the Greek that deals with this, you would see that this is something the Lord initiated in us as those who were elected to sal- unto salvation. He initiated this in us, the spirit baptism. It's not something I did. I didn't ask for it. You didn't ask for it. We weren't in position for it until the Lord saw fit to make our salvation manifest or known to us and to others. And then we receive no glory for it because it's all him. So there is unity in this distinction of the members, unity in this distinction of the members. Nowhere is Paul calling for unity around distinction in doctrine. He's saying unity and distinction among the members. Simply put, we're all different. If you look around, you will see we're all different. If you find yourself in the company of other Christians, you'll notice we are intellectual beings made by God. We're all different. You make observations. We're not the same. And even more so, that's okay. You remember in Ephesians when we said those are not points of disunity. Those are actual points of unity because God has willed it so that we're not the same. You know who acts the same, speaks the same? Fashionably, they all look the same. The cults. Their patterns of speech, the things they say, the things they do, because they're taught to conform to a particular icon. But the body of Christ is beautifully diverse in that we are all distinct in how we appear. But we all hold to one confession and one conviction. And yet we're all distributed different gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we operate those gifts on the benefit of one another, though being distinct. God has established that. And that's what Paul is saying. Because you know what the Corinthians were trying to do when the report came to Chloe's people? They wanted everyone to be the same. You all come over here. Be like the Paul we created. You all come over here. Be like the Christ we created. You all come on this side. Be like the Apollos we created. The factions. Factions kill your soul. They kill your soul. Paul is trying to revive the soul. And that's nothing to say what it does to the spirit. Factions destroy your spirit. And they certainly destroy your body. And Paul says, no. I'm not going to allow this to happen. I'm not going to allow this to happen because... If you truly are in Christ, you were baptized into his spirit. 
This doesn't mean an expected mode of how one should talk, think, and act relative to comparing yourself to someone else. It means how we should think, act, and speak relative to how we compare ourselves to the Word of God. Yes, there will be unity. There will be points of intersection. But in conforming to God, we are many members, yet one body. Paul is rescuing them from their own cultism. They already had the imperial cult of Rome hovering over all areas of their life. And they were starting to join that with church fellowship and church governance. And Paul warns them that's not what we're looking for. How liberating is it is to be uh, how liberating it is to be who Christ intended us to be. And I don't mean we, we pick that. I mean, as it is, becomes apparent to you in your walk, you are whom he has granted you to be. There's liberty in that. There's freedom in that. I don't mean sinfulness. I mean in holiness, in confession of sins. And so you see this here. We are distinct in some ways. There is unity and distinction. But we are distinct in some ways. We are distinct in ethnicity. Paul points that out. That's not me. That's Paul pointing that out. Socioeconomic status. He says that. Whether Jews or Greeks. Whether slaves or free. Whether you're at the top of the economic food chain or at the bottom. Yet we are one in him if we indeed belong to him. That's beautiful. That what he has accomplished transcends. We didn't have to fill out applications and qualify for it. We are in him because he chose us. No matter where you were before, when he chose you, he chose you. We are all partakers, joined together in him as we drink of the one spirit who inhabits us, who believe. Now you see the coming together. You see the parts beginning to work with the whole. We are now partakers together. We're drinking of the same spirit. It is why when we say things that line up with the word of God, we're looking at each other and we go, yes, I agree. Absolutely. Amen. Because there is a unifying spirit who brings us into the church body, fitting together into the head. It is simply conformity to Christ. That's what we're after. That's the whole of our lives. Conformity to Christ and to Christ alone. That is liberty. That is freedom. And Paul elsewhere in this epistle talks about freedom. He wants them to be free because as they're establishing factions, as they're, as Paul will say later when the false apostles show up, beginning to compare themselves to one another because that's the doctrine that the uh, false apostles bring in. Paul wants them to be free from that. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. He says that to them. And I believe that is the biggest temptation that befalls anyone. To become a slave to men. But look at verse 14. He goes further. For the body is not one member, but many. I think this puts an end to all the false systems that believe they are the ones who are the beacon of what is known as Christianity. I say that because 
Paul destroys that thinking. The body is not one member, but many. It's why you and I don't answer to one institution. We answer to no human institution. And I really want you to be encouraged by that. That's why I prayed that prayer. I want you to be encouraged that here, you don't answer to any institution. You answer to Christ. And that's the same when you walk out of these doors. And our time of fellowship in the context of the Lord's church at least is made manifest. And now we move from here to go out into society and into the world. You answer to no one but Christ. Paul wanted the Corinthians to live that way. He wanted them to stop thinking they answered to Rome. To stop thinking they answered to the factions that they created. You answer to Christ. What does it matter who thinks what? Who does what? We answer to Christ. And if we answer to him and he commends us, we're free. We're free. If you answer to men and men approve of you and Christ condemns you, you're a slave to sin. And so Paul wants to make that plain. We are all partakers joined together in him as we drink of the one spirit who inhabits us. There is a distinction in members related to the gifts, related to where we operate those gifts. These are very practical matters related to where we operate those gifts. You're not here all the time. So you go out and you use whatever gifts when you come across other believers in whatever sphere you do so. And you use those gifts in the context of the whole body of Christ to do what you will in the lives of them. And sometimes you'll do something toward unbelievers and you're not necessarily trying to operate a gift for their benefit because they're not in the body, but you are doing something that benefits them in the sense of God's common grace. But my point is we live as though we are believers and we live as though we are believers in every context. But related to the body of Christ, this also means that as a Christian, you have relationship with other Christians. You don't force relationships with other Christians. You don't call people Christians who are not so you can have relationships. But you have relationships with believers because they need your gifts and you need their gifts. But we are parts fitting into the whole. It's not just us doing it. It's why I don't believe we are the only Christians alive or around. Praise God that we're not. There are many. Until such time as I believe the rapture that's taught in Thessalonians, the church is still here and she's visible and she may be difficult to see at times, but she's here. And we are parts who fit into the whole body. We are many, but we are joined together as one. Now we must define oneness. We must make sure our oneness is based on the imperatives of scripture. We must not only be Theological, but our theology has to inform our lives. But listen to this. We are not one in the sense because this is where so many modern evangelical leaders have gained not only a foothold, but a head start in personality cultism. We are not one in the sense that we must be fit within the same mold by some human agent or some human institution 
or some human ruler governing over us. We're not one in that sense. We're not one because we all attend this place or that place. We're one in as much as we're in Christ. He purchased us. He will see to our eternal life with him. He teaches us. He guards us. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And so we're accountable to him. I don't know how often maybe you've heard the question. People ask it in different ways. To whom are you accountable? What do you read? Who's teaching you? And when you say Christ, they almost laugh at you. Because in their minds, they haven't done any of this. They are fitting into molds that were cast for them by others. But for us, I only want Christ to teach me. And when anyone, me, if I'm up here speaking, you only want to hear the words that come from Christ in the sense of his scripture. You want to be able to look down and say, yeah, I can see where that point aligns with what is taught in this particular verse. But listen, the body is not simply one organism. It's not simply one organism. Because I think if we see it this way, we begin to push people away and make them check off our boxes of what we think they ought to be. It's not simply one organism because so many people are writing about the church and have over the years. And they've gotten it wrong. A business can see itself simply as one organism, and you better fit into the business practices. A church doesn't have that uh, damaging luxury. The The body's not simply one organism. It is many members. Listen to this. It's many members who fit together to make one organism. Many members fitting together to make one organism. Remember what we said about what Paul was teaching earlier, especially in Romans? That the church is certainly people who fellowship in perhaps a building. But the church is not simply the building. The church is the people. And the people who function as God has commanded his people to function. That's the church. So the church is built on fellowship. Certainly built on Christ, but fellowship with Christ. Fellowship with his spirit. So it's a very particular thing that Paul is saying here. The body is not simply one organism, because then you'll just welcome in everybody. That's the danger. Ecumenism is the danger. When you just include people of all convictions with no substance, all faiths with no substance, as long as they do the same activities that you do, and as long as they're a bit docile and never challenge what you established. That's not the church. Paul calls it the body, and the body belongs to the head. The body belongs to Christ. He dictates the terms. So it's many members. That's what Paul is saying. It's many members who make one organism, one body. Because this is a case, we cannot discard any members as though we do not need them. Look at verse 15. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. The whole body were an eye. Where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, 
where would the sense of smell be? We need one another. It's as I've said, because this is the case, we cannot discard any true members as though we do not need them. All members are significant. All members of the body are significant. But they are not only significant in the theoretical sense. The members are significant in the functional sense. So people will say this and not do this. They'll say, oh, the body of Christ, the body, I love the body of Christ. Uh, we're all so important. And it's theory. I'm talking functionally. And I'm going to tell you what I mean. Functionally. We need one another in order to fully operate the way God has intended. I can't operate the way God has intended if I'm not with the believers who are operating the same way. I can't do it. I can't operate that way if I'm just, you know, as 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 uh, as I'm knighting or commissioning a, a soldier, I simply just knight people because you look like me, you've read my books, and you think like me. I can't function the right way. There's going to be a fragmented sense in which we function. I have to function based on what God has commanded for his church. And so we need one another to fully operate the way that God has intended, or we will not operate the way that we should. We need one another. I need you, you need me. And you can see that Paul is saying the same things to the Corinthians. You all need each other the right way, not the way you're trying to do it, not based on the report I've got from Chloe's people. You need each other the right way. But listen, you can see as we've made it this far, just in looking at some of the things we've seen, the Corinthians were guilty of the disunity that Paul lays out in the following verses, which cannot be so. They can't continue this way to install factions and faction leaders is to discard necessary members of the part, and then you disfigure and deform the whole to the detriment of the parts and the whole. It can't just be we've tortured people spiritually, we've discarded people spiritually, we've ruined them emotionally, we've misused text, we've arrived, so we have the structure, and you all fit into the structure. That's not what Paul wants. They were already doing that in Corinth. He says, stop doing that. Instead, do this. The factions work against God's plan. They always do. The factions always work against God's plan, God's decrees. While trying to convince themselves and others that they operated according to God's plan. I'll take you to the context itself. The factions weren't named off of... Uh, Greek mythological gods. The factions weren't named off of buildings and cities in Corinth. They were named off people who actually served the living Christ and Christ himself. They called the factions after the names of those individuals. Paul uses human anatomy, human anatomy or the body, our physical bodies as a metaphor related to the function of the body of Christ in the practical working of the gifts within the body. That's what he was trying to arrive at. When he speaks about the, uh, the ear, the eye, the foot, he's trying to help us understand how the gifts function in the body, but how you see yourself functioning within the body. 
Because you know what the factions do? They tear down a sense of God's esteem of us. They tear that down, and that should never happen. Because you see the language that Paul is after. People are starting to say, I mean, I'm, I have no use here. Because the factions have a standard that cannot be measured according to God's word. And you won't fit. Because that standard will always change. You look at somebody the wrong way, now you're out. We're going to Matthew 18 you because we didn't like the way you looked at us. And that's really what's happening today. I mean, if we're honest, instead of it being here's what the word says, here's my gifts. How can I use my gifts to serve you? Oh, I have these gifts. I want to serve you this way. Oh, well, let's let's hear a word of exhortation or rebuke, if need be, from the word of God, from the preacher. That's not happening. It's not happening. It happens sometimes, but it's not really happening. And you have people who sit there. And they're emotionally stimulated, but they're really sitting there and saying, I have no place here. There's no use for me here. And that's what's happening in this text. Paul's tying it to the factions. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. Paul's not saying, well, the way to see yourself, the way that God sees you, is why don't you take up the task of putting away chairs or doing something that will be subservient to men around you so they can deem you as righteous and humble. No. He's saying use your gifts. Use your gifts. Be sure of the gifts that you have and use them in the employ and service of others in the body of Christ. And he uses this. Because Paul had a compassion for people. We all should. We all aren't as we ought to be. But Paul truly had a compassion for God's people. He wanted them to work together, but he wanted them to work out what they did individually as well. Because of this, the foot cannot discard the hand. Neither one can see themselves as useless. You think of this as you would think of human anatomy. You know that he's talking about people because the body parts have speaking parts. But in this sense, he's talking about the hand cannot look to the foot and say, I don't need you. Mutually, there's no use for us functioning together. You need your feet and you need your hands. The foot cannot discard the hand because both parts make up the whole body. The point is for your whole body to function. Anything less is deformity and will limit the body's function at full capacity. Isn't it amazing, though, that Jesus, when he talks about killing sin, he talks about the necessity to spiritually kill off the members that cause you to sin. Why? So that the body can function spiritually as a whole. It's amazing how there's some parallel to that. Verse 16, we see Paul's not after deformity. Because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? He's not looking for this functional sameness that we see raging in people who cannot be who God intended them to be. 
for fear of getting kicked out of the synagogue was Jesus' words. For fear of being kicked out of the synagogue. They could not be who Christ intended them to be. That's called apostasy. We're going through it in Hebrews. When you can't be who God has called you to be, you go off and be who you want to be. In the simplest sense, it'll be something other than what God has decreed and designed. That's the danger. The ear cannot discard itself, thinking the eye is more important. And Paul's going to get into this with the notion of the honorable versus the dishonorable. Versus those who are more presentable. They need to fall back a little bit. And those who are less presentable in the bodies, in the body of Christ. We need to present them as more honorable. You know where Paul did that? Romans 16. He did that for us in Romans 16. All these people you do not know, they have contributed to the ministry in Rome. Bless them. Jesus did it in the account of the woman who who poured uh, the oil over his head. Whenever the gospel is preached, make sure you mention her name. And so you have this, that this idea from Paul by the spirit that the church cannot be deformed. It's equally important to have both eyes and ears in a literal sense. Think then how much more so this is all related to the body and its many members. It is also fitting to think that Paul does not view the whole to the detriment of the parts. He does not view the whole to the detriment of the parts. He views the parts as a vital necessity if we are going to even consider the whole. We can't talk about the whole church until we talk about her individual members. Know how Peter said that? Judgment begins where? At the house of God. Oh, just the house of God in the general theoretical sense? No, her individual members. How they function. You can see here also how Paul contends looking forward as the spirit does, because I believe application is us truly being able to look forward from the perspective of Scripture because it's built in Scripture, because Scripture is indeed timeless. We all believe that it's timeless. But I believe in Paul, you find a contention against the modern church. Who wants to view only the whole, but never the parts. He's roped off from the parts. He's partitioned from the parts. They only want to view the whole, but never the parts. But even in this, the member cannot view his or herself as self-sufficient. So many introduce a lot of things as the so-called problem. Raging the church. And then they just introduce more problems that plague the church. But one of the problems that plagued the church, and I'm telling you in Corinth then and now, is that you had people who were viewing the whole to the detriment of the parts. They were viewing the whole for sure and saying church, but they were not looking at the individual members and how they ought to function together. They had not made that their concern. And if it was their concern, you just fit them into a faction. 
or some practice that really can't be substantiated by scripture. That's the problem. At the same time, the member cannot, in light of the, of the whole, view his or herself, listen to this, as ultimately worthless. You can't do that. You'll start to get into despair. And if you're in places that view the whole to the detriment of the parts, you are headed down a road of despair. You must view your individual place. Not raging or autonomous individuality. I'm saying you must look at your own gifts, your own convictions, your own thoughts concerning Christ and fit them into the whole. Don't simply come to convictions because the whole is coming to convictions. You see what I'm saying? There's a there's a part and whole working together. And we need it to be that way so that we have a true and pure church. We need it to be that way. I'm not saying that the church can be ultimately pure in the time in which we find ourselves, but we're striving in that direction. Here is one of the ways that we do. Here's how we strive in that direction. You cannot view yourself as ultimately worthless. But on the other on the other side, you can't view yourself as worthy simply based on self-sufficiency. Based on the fact that I am doing this, therefore, it is great. But you also can't look and say... Well, it's worthless. We're not even considering what the parts do, so it doesn't really matter. I'll just go find a place. I'll just fit in, and then I'll be deemed worthy. But that can't be the, that can't be the case. We have to elevate our thoughts in that way. Every member has a vital role in the function of the whole body. Every member, every born-again believer has a vital irreplaceable role in the function of the whole body. I know you think like this. Isn't it rare to hear this? It's so rare to hear this. And I know you think this way. Every member has a vital role in the function of the whole body. We are all equally important in this way. Once we have been born again, purchased and redeemed, we now have a vital role. The time in which you find yourself, the time in which you live, the age in which you live, God has uniquely and very specifically placed you in that moment and also will sustain you. And you are to accomplish things that he has put forward for you to accomplish. And you test that by his will. And then you begin to operate and function in that way. But it is very intimate and very unique to the individual so that the body can continue to be served as a whole. Paul not only deals with the parts, the eye, the ear, the hand, the foot, but rather how those parts function for the benefit of the whole. They have to function for the benefit of the whole. But also for the benefit of its essential purpose. The problem of the church today is people show up in buildings, sometimes with mass audiences, and they say, how can I serve? And then now they're going to feed themselves into something that is not measurable by Scripture. Because it'll be based on subject, how beautiful or handsome is the person who's asking? How, how, you know, was their head tilted when they asked? It's all the nuances of subjective human experience. If you show up anywhere, 
And if it's biblical, you should say, I'm here to serve this way. Because here are my gifts. Here are my gifts. So I'm going to serve you with my gifts. And you're going to serve me with your gift. And we will be encouraged. And we will grow. And I say that because as Paul is dealing not only with the parts, but the whole for the benefit of the whole. But listen, also for the benefit of the whole's essential purpose. We fit into the head who is the Lord himself. It's not just working together. It's not just teamwork. It is we are actually in fellowship working together to bring glory and honor to the head as he has so asked and declared and commanded us. To bring honor and glory to his name. But look at this. Here's why we are where we are. None of these are placed by themselves. In other words, none of us placed ourselves here. We didn't do that. God did that. This is not factions. The true church isn't a faction. Because in the factions, men place you where they want you to go. Men put you where they need you. They are installed by themselves. It's why they keep moving on every year or two. Because they're self-installed, self-driven, self-motivated, self-willed. Sounds like what Jude was rebuking. But not the one who is placed by God. The one who's placed by God is installed there by God. And I'm talking about all the members. I'm just talking about a teacher. We have to think beyond that that all being members of the body of Christ, a vital function and purpose in the body of Christ, a purpose that is his, for he has declared his purposes in the scripture. We're placed by him. Look at this in verse 18. Where am I getting that from? But now it says it. But now God has placed the members. Do you see that? That's how you know you're not in a faction. God has placed the members. I think some of the evangelism today should be asking people, how did you get here? Not tell me your story or your testimony. How did you get here? And then if they don't start with God did this, it's disingenuous. They weren't played. They were installed by some institution, some corporate governing body put them there. The people elected them like they would a public official. But God installs whom he wills. It says it here. And we should have great encouragement and joy. That's why I prayed for us to have joy because of verse 18. But now God has placed the members. That affects how I view you. That affects how you view yourself. That affects how you function. That affects how we function together. That affects how we function when we leave this place. That God has so placed his members Each one of them, not just community or institution, each one of us, he's placed. Why do you go there? Because God placed me here. Why do you do what you do there? Because God placed me here. Why are you with them? Because God placed them here. I think if you started asking people why they do what they do, why they go where they go, they're not going to say God placed them there. Oh, the programs, I have relatives here. 
I like the way the guy says this. I heard something on the radio or on the TV. None of that sounds like God, God brought me to this place. Because when God brings you somewhere, he keeps you there. doesn't mean there won't be a season where you move on. But I'm saying that it will be evident that God has placed you there. And in the time you were there, you have been sustained by him and you function one to another. As we close, we look at this. The members were installed each in the most intimate sense. Each one of them. I love the way Paul writes that. Each one of them. Just as he desired. It's the same language of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's lost not one. He has kept each one of us. He was speaking in that context of his disciples except the one who was to betray him. Just as he desired. That strikes directly against the factions. Just as he desired. Now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. I believe the church at large today is suffering from many things. Many things. I believe she truly is. Some of the suffering is that they believe each member must function as an exact replica of the next. As an exact replica. And if you don't function as a replica of the next, then there's no use for you. And in so believing, people, when they believe this, because I want to help those who are listening. And so believing people, leaders so-called, begin to discard those who do not fit the molds they created. That sounds a lot like the problem that Paul is trying to solve. But here we see God honoring the individual members, granting, granting to each one of them their function and purpose and causing them to comprise the whole. Because the parts make up the whole. It's not you have the whole, the parts are there, but we still talk about the whole. No, the parts make up the whole. And contribute at the highest level to the whole. I'm describing the church. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. Let's pray.